Enter into John 14 this morning. It's Thursday night of Passion Week. Jesus, on Friday, the next day after this, he will be crucified. He's spending his last evening alive with his disciples. They have just eaten the Passover meal. In the midst of the Passover meal, Jesus has identified the fact that there is a traitor in their midst. He's revealed that fact and identified the traitor. That traitor is Judas Iscariot. Judas has now left. The plan to betray Jesus is now in motion. Jesus has then informed his disciples that he will be leaving them and they cannot come. He's preparing them for his departure. He's preparing them for life as his people. He's preparing them for mission as his people. But they are in turmoil. Look at me at John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Their hearts are troubled. The disciples are troubled people. The disciples are troubled men. They're with their Lord, and he has told them, point blank, I am leaving, and where I'm going, you cannot come. You cannot follow me this time. They've been following him for years, They've been listening to him for years, and now he's leaving. And they're in turmoil. They are troubled. We can relate to this, can't we? They're in tumult. We, we live in tumultuous times. I think that's what everyone would say. Not sure if it's what everyone says in every generation. Well, it wasn't like this back in, you know, to, to, now it's worse. I'm not sure if everyone says that or if it's actually true. But I think we can all agree we do live in a tumultuous time. We are troubled. We are a troubled people like the disciples. We're troubled over politics, aren't we? We're troubled over war and the prospect of war. We're troubled over money. How many people are stressed out about money? We're troubled over taxes. Can't stop talking about taxes. We're troubled over food, health. That's a big one, isn't it? What are we going to eat? What are we not going to eat? We're going to be healthy. We're going to do that. Very troubling for some folks. We're troubled over global warming. We're troubled over everyday stresses. We are largely a people driven by fear and anxiety. We are driven by fear and anxiety. And one author is reading on something else. He said that we are a people who like to borrow trouble. Meaning this, that most of the things, much of the things at least we're troubled about are things that aren't, don't actually exist. They're things that aren't even a reality. They're just things that might be, that might happen, that could happen, and they affect our whole life and they trouble our whole life. That's borrowed trouble, one author says. I like that term. It's very true. We bite our nails and we stress out and we lose sleep and whatever else over just things that might happen that we don't have control over and we're not okay with that. Well, that's where they are. Their Lord, Master, friend is departing and they're troubled. They don't see his departure rightly. He's gonna try to help with that. But since they don't see it rightly, they're troubled. He's going to depart, but first he will spend 
Thursday evening with them. He's already started this, and it will continue now for five chapters. He's going to spend the rest of Thursday evening teaching and comforting them. I want you to look at verse one with me again, John 14, one, for really the main thing that every, everything else is gonna come from this this morning. John 14, one, let not your hearts be troubled. That's the main thing. Well, how is this possible? Why, why would our hearts not be troubled? How can we prevent our hearts being, from being troubled? What, what does that even mean? That's what we're gonna look at this morning. How can our hearts not be troubled? By believing Jesus' promises of love. That's the title of this sermon, John 14, 1 through 14, promises of love. That in Christ, church, is our true rest. In Christ is our true home. In Christ is our true way. In Christ is our true calling. Christ is those things, those are all found in Christ, and those are the promises that bring our hearts from trouble to rest. Start with the first one. Number one, true rest. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. As we said, he is saying this to them because their hearts are troubled. Inward confusion, Inward turmoil, inward anxiety, they are troubled. It's a pretty strong word. They're troubled. They're having a very difficult time. Jesus is leaving them. He's made that very clear. And they can't come. They're not okay with that. They don't understand that. They're just, they're not getting a grip on what he's saying. They don't understand why he's leaving. They don't understand why they can't come. They don't get it. They don't get it. And they're losing control. They feel like, I have no control over this. Why is this happening? We're gonna see them do that in, in, a, in a few verses here. They, they just don't know what else to do. But Jesus' church is their good shepherd. Isn't he? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. John 10, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is their good shepherd and Jesus is patient with his people. He is patient with his people and he is not satisfied to let them languish in turmoil. In fact, he commands them to turn from it. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's a command. That's an order Don't let your hearts be troubled. Get control of yourself. The context tells us that he says this in a gentle way, for sure, but it's still a command. Let not your hearts be troubled. Get a grip on what's going on in your heart. Does Jesus sympathize with his people? Because he commands them to not be troubled here. So he should ask the question, well, doesn't he sympathize with his people In trouble, doesn't he sympathize with his people in temptation and in weakness? Yes, he does. Uh, Hebrews 4 on your screen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. In other words, we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he's been through everything we've been through. 
He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been weak. He became a man, subject to frailty, to weakness, to hunger, to thirst, to being, becoming tired and weary. He's able to sympathize with us because he has been tempted in every way we are. So yes, he sympathizes with his people for sure in trouble and weakness. Back in John 12, verse 27, we see that here. He has experienced what we have. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. There, there it is. His soul gets troubled. He gets it. Yes, he sympathizes. Yes, he's kind. He's patient. He's comforting. But his care as the good shepherd doesn't stop there. He doesn't just sympathize. He does do that, but he doesn't just sympathize. As our good shepherd, Jesus calls us out of turmoil and in to rest. Did you hear that? Jesus sympathizes, but he also calls us out of turmoil and in to rest. Psalm 23, verse four, you all know this verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I'm in a scary place, even though I'm frightened, even though I can't even see what's around me, even though I don't know what's next, even though I have no control over what happens next, I will not fear. Why? Because the situation has improved? No. Not because the situation has improved, because you are with me. That's why. Because God, you are with me. You comfort me. You help me. All of the things that you have to offer are the right things that I need. Back to John 12, 27. This is what Jesus does when he's in turmoil. Now my soul is troubled. Okay, there it is, just like us. But look what he does. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this hour, I have, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So that's what Jesus does in turmoil. And that's what he calls us to in our trouble. In the moment of their trouble, the good shepherd draws them into rest. He commands them to rest. And here's the way to true rest. Let not your hearts be troubled. Here's the way to true rest then. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in God. Believe in me. That's the way to true rest. Does that sound too simple? Does that sound naive? Just believe in God. You might say, well, I, I'm in the middle of it. That sounds great, but that sounds too simple. Well, let's let scripture speak for itself. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Isaiah 41, 10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We could go on and on and on and on. There's hundreds of verses like this. What we're not talking about here is just 
a, a, a general, nebulous, empty belief. That's not what we mean. Like, just say I believe in God and boom, everything will just go away, poof, like a magic genie. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying here is believe in God, believe also in me. That's ongoing, active, pursuing faith. Faith that actually pursues God. Faith that trusts and rests in the fact that God cares for me, that God loves me, that God's sovereign over every single thing in my life. Faith that looks at God's promises and takes hold of them. Faith that looks at God's promises and allows them to take hold of our own hearts. That's the type of belief we're talking about here that Jesus is talking about. Faith in who God is. Faith in what God has done. Faith in what God has promised to do. Faith that takes hold of God. Church, let let the word of God speak for itself. That might sound simple, but when's the last time you asked God to let the word pierce your heart? When's the last time you didn't put your Bible down until it got a grip of you? When's the last time you, you asked the sovereign creator Lord to wreck you with his word? that you might be restored. It's not naive, it's what scripture says. True rest is found in Christ. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's their true rest. Further, they have a true home. True home. In my father's house, are many rooms. He gives them further reason for their true rest now. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Last week we said that Jesus is trying to shift their paradigm. He's trying to shift their paradigm. They're not viewing his departure in the right way. And he's trying to shift their view of it. That you, we have to remember their world, the world that they live in, is one of instant, constant, personal connection to contact with God incarnate. So in other words, if they have a question, they just say, I don't know, let's go ask Jesus. If they have a, an issue that they need help with, they say, you know, let's go, let's go seek Jesus' help. If there's anything that they need, they just go and ask him. He's right there. That's their world. That's what they know. That's what they've been used to. And his leaving is the last thing they want. His dying is the worst thing they can imagine. So they're not viewing his departure right. But Jesus, church, is working on his people. He's working with them. He's working in them. He's working on them. He's trying to shift their paradigm. He doesn't throw his hands up and leave them, say, you know what, I don't even need disciples. I can just go to the cross without, I don't need disciples for that. So I'm over you guys, it's been three years, you're not getting it, sayonara. He, He doesn't do that, he's patient with them. He's working in them, he's working on them. 
And he's trying to shift their paradigm. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, probably, hopefully you have, but we're, 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 we're weird as human beings, aren't we? If we have our mind made up on something, it's very difficult to change that. If we have our, our, our view on something fixed, this is what I want, this is what I'm gonna do, to honestly shift that is next to impossible. So <laughs> that's where they are. Their view is fixed. And Jesus is trying to shift that. It's almost impossible to change someone's mind, but Jesus is patient with his people, church. He doesn't stop working on them. He doesn't stop working on us. I want you to follow him here. I want you to follow his flow of thought. Verse one, your hearts are troubled. Why? Because you don't know what's coming. You fear that it's bad. You fear maybe it's the worst and you have no control over any of it. Does that sound familiar? Your hearts are troubled. You don't know what's coming. So believe in God and believe in me. Disciples, believe the words I'm about to say to you. Believe me. Believe what I'm about to say to you. My departure is for your benefit. My departure is for your good. I know you don't believe that, but believe what I'm saying to you. My departure is for your good. I am going to prepare a place for you. That's why it's good. My, my departure is for your good. I'm going to prepare a place for you, a home for you. Let me say it this way. Let me read it for you this way. A lot of times we read this as, as I'm going to prepare, like I'm going, once I get there, I'm gonna start preparing stuff. I'm gonna rearrange the rooms. I'm gonna paint. I'm gonna move the ice maker so no one gets woken up by that. I'm gonna shuffle stuff around. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tidy it up for you guys. That's not what he's saying. Read it this way. My going will prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. That's why I go. My going will prepare a home for you. My death will prepare a home for you. That's what he's saying. He's not going to shuffle stuff around. He's going to the cross so that their place will be prepared. And he says a room for you, an eternal home, an eternal permanent dwelling place in the Father's house. Not going to redecorate, I go to prepare. That's what my going will accomplish, the preparation of your eternal home. Secure for you an eternal, uh, an eternal home. Secure for you a room in my Father's house. Some of your translations might say mansion, or maybe you remember that, you read that. That's not really the right rendering of that word. It's the, the point is not just that there, you, we all have our own separate houses and there's a house somewhere in heaven. Once we get there, God has a house for us. There's a mansion for us he's preparing. That's not the point. The point is we have room, a room in the Father's house. That's different. 
It's not like, well, maybe it'll be in the capital, maybe it'll be on the outskirts, maybe I'll be way out in the sticks, but at least I'll be in heaven. That's not the point. The point is, we'll have space in the Father's own house. That's the point of what he's saying here. That's the point of this room. That's the point of the permanent dwelling in the Father's house. The point's not the lavishness. Mansion. I have a mansion. God's going to give me a mansion. That's so lavish and nice. It's not the point. The point is that you have a true, eternal home with God, in God's home, as a member of God's family. And that day and the day that Jesus is talking to them, when, when a family would have kids that have sons, the sons would grow up, they'd get married. Instead of moving out and buying their own home, doing that sort of thing, what they would do is they would just add an extension on their father's home. And as they would continue to have children, the family would add more and more and more extensions. The home would expand. And then their kids would come. They'd be third generation now. And they would continue to add extensions, oftentimes. And the father's house would get larger and larger and larger and larger. That's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, there is enough room for you. I'm adding enough rooms for you in God the Father's home. That's your true home. Church, do you know that this place, this earth, this home is not your true final home? Hebrews 13, 14 For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews 11.10 talks about Abraham, how God called Abraham out of his home to be a sojourner, to live in crappy places. But here was the point of Abraham's journey. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham can live in a dumpy place. Abraham can, as an old man, get called out of his home where he's comfortable and everything's nice and tidy and he knows what's going on and he can go and be a sojourner. Why? Because he had faith that God had a better home for him, a home that he himself built, that God himself built for Abraham. That's what he looked forward to, his true home. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You'd be surprised how many verses there are, Old Testament and New, on this topic. Go home and look it up. Homework. We'll check you at the door when you come in. We'll ask you how many verses there are that talk about our eternal home. I'm totally kidding. But for your own personal benefit, it's surprising how many verses there are that talk about this. You'd be surprised. Over and over and over and over and over again in one way or another. This is temporary. This is fleeting. This is not permanent. We look forward to what is permanent. We look forward to what is eternal. We look forward to what God himself built. That's our true home. Something we don't, I don't think about enough. But Jesus says it here, you have a true home. You have a true home. And to make it more clear, he tells us why This is our true home. Verse three, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is why it's our true home because it's where Jesus is. I will prepare a place for you and I'll come again to you to take you to myself that where I am you may be also. 
That's why it's our true home, because that's where Jesus is. Notice he says, I am. That's our true home, because it's where the I am is. Jesus here subtly takes on himself, assigns to himself, as he's done multiple times in this gospel thus far, God's own name. That where I am, you may be also. That where the I am is, you may be there too. That's why it's our true home, because that's where Jesus is. That's where the I am is. He himself is our true rest. He himself is our true home. Church, in a broken world, you may feel displaced at times. You may feel like you have no belonging. You may feel orphaned. You may just feel dissatisfied. Something's missing. You may have a longing for something more. Well, if you're in Christ, you have a true home in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have a true home, permanent home, secure home, eternal home in heaven in the Father's house with the I am. Maybe you have a good home. That's good. That's a, that's a blessing. Maybe you've been blessed with a great home. You have a better home to look forward to. While we might, we should appreciate our current blessings here on earth. We should worship God for our current blessings here on earth. Wherever we're at on that scale, may we together look forward to the future grace that God has in store for his people, our true home, our true home, true, secure home in the Father's house with the I am. True rest, true home. Number three, true Way. Verse four, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus says that. Thomas said to him, verse five, Lord, we do not know where you're going. If we, if we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. This is what I mean. They sound a little desperate, don't they? We don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. What are you talking about? Jesus says to him then one of the most well-known verses in all of scripture Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Do you ever feel that way, church? We don't know what's, what's going on. We don't know how to cope with this. I know that the word says one thing, but I don't know how to apply that to my life. I don't know what that looks like in life. Uh, I just don't know how I can believe. I don't even know what to believe. Remember, the Lord is patient with his people. Thank God he's patient with us. He's working in us and on us. They don't get it. They're not grasping it. So he makes it clear for them. And here's the first thing he makes clear, church. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way is not a what, but a who. The way is not a what, but a who. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The way is a person. And he is the way, the only way. There is no other way. There is no other way to the Father. There is no other way to God. This is the true way. 
He is the true way. You and I, by our very nature and by the decisions that we make, are all disconnected from God. We're disconnected from God from our very birth. We are not all children of God. We're all creation of God. We are not all children of God, but we are all, by nature, enemies of God. God is holy. We are sinful. We have been cut off from the presence and person of God by our sin. Genesis 2, 17. God says this. He creates Adam and Eve, our first parents, and he gives them one prohibition. He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Why? For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Really, what's the big deal? God doesn't like us eating fruit. If I was God, I'd make that a rule because fruit's not good. But for them, the issue was not eating fruit. God didn't come to them and say, oh my gosh, you ate the apple. That's such a, wow, the apple's really important. That was not the issue. The issue was God told them not to. The issue isn't the fact that they ate fruit. The issue is who they sinned against. The issue isn't what they ate. It's who they disobeyed. They disobeyed God. That's how big of a deal sin is. That's how big of a gap there is between God and us. That when we transgress what he tells us to do, it ruins literally everything. The whole human race fell, and friends, we have been walking in their footsteps of sin ever since. Cut off from the life of God. That's what God means when he says, you shall die. Spiritual death, cut off from the life of God. And friends, Jesus comes as the way to God. The I am himself comes as the way to God, as the only access to God, as the only channel to God, connecting us back to the life of God. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus touches God and man. He takes man who's separate from God and he brings us to God. He connects us back to God. He's our pathway to God. He's the pathway to God. The path, the way. There is no other way. He is the way to God. Look with me again at verse six, because he himself is the truth of God. I am the way. How are you the way, Jesus? Well, I'm the truth of God and I'm the life of God. He's the way to God because he's the truth of God. John 1, 18, you'll remember all the way back at the beginning of this gospel, John says this, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus comes as God become a man, and he shows us who God is. He reveals God to us. He reveals God to us. He reveals the truth about God. Jesus is the truth of God. There's a lot of religions in the world. All of them claim to have truth about God. None of them have truth about God, except for Jesus. He is God. He shows us who God is. Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth of God, he reveals the truth of God, and he's the life of God. Verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. They just keep 
They keep pressing. Show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So connected, church, are the Father and the Son that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. When we see Jesus, we're seeing the life of God. Jesus is the way to God because he's the truth of God. He's the way to God because he's the life of God, the life of God. When we see Jesus, read from Jesus, we're reading from God. This is the question, church, that every human philosophy and every world religion has ever tried, that has ever existed, has tried to answer. That is, how can we know, see, experience God? How can we experience the divine? How can we know him? And Jesus answers that question. It's in me, the I am. It's through me, the I am. Man's religion church is reaching up to God. It's trying to figure out who God is. It's trying to make sense of the cosmos and make sense of the world around us by, by attaining to God's position. It's speculation. We speculate about God, try to figure him out. We reach up, that's speculation. In Christianity, God comes down to us. We don't have to guess and speculate and wonder. It's revelation. He reveals himself to us. What was previously veiled is removed. It's like these curtains. They go whoosh. That's how God reveals himself to us. He unveils himself in the person of Christ. Verse 11, verse 10, rather, he proves this by his words. I am in the Father and the Father's in me. The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. His words testify to it and prove it and his works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me or else believe on the count of my works. The works that Jesus did for his whole entire ministry, all miraculous, all divine, all point to who he is. All point to the fact that he's God incarnate. All point to the fact that God the Father has sent him. Believe his words, believe his works. He was revealed to us. God revealed himself to us and he's proven his revelation to us in his words and his works. And he also accomplishes everything needed to connect us to the life of God. He reveals God church, and he connects us to God. He reveals who God is, and he connects us to the life of God. This is his life, his death, and his resurrection. He lives a perfect life in our place that we could never live. He dies a death that we deserve to die, and he rises to newness of life in victory over sin as a foretaste of what you and I will experience. That's the gospel. 
That is the gospel. God creates good. We fall away and rebel against God. Jesus comes, lives, dies in our place, rises for our life. We respond to that. That's the gospel. Jesus is the way to God. He accomplished everything needed to connect us to God. We are provided the way. We are given the truth. We are brought into life through the I am and through the I am alone. Church, I should say, friend, if you're not a Christian, if you are looking for the way, this is it. This is the way. And the I am, Jesus, invites you to himself. You might say God. I believe in God, so that's good enough. But what he says here is that if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we don't know Jesus, we don't know God. We might even say Jesus. Love Jesus. I, Jesus is awesome. He's my Savior. I, I'm, I'm all about Jesus. Okay, great. But if your life isn't evidencing belief in him, then you don't know him. Jesus says, it's very simple. You can, tra- you can tell a tree by its fruit. If we say, I love Jesus and our life has looked the same for 20 years, no sanctification, no evidence of care about Christ, no evidence of loving him, no growth in godliness, no growth in faith, no growth in scripture, chances are our confession is empty. But church, here's the good news, that as we said earlier, the Lord is patient with us, isn't he? And he welcomes us, he welcomes us to himself. He welcomes us to the foot of the cross. He welcomes us to life. He welcomes us through what he's accomplished. He welcomes us to God. And alternatively, church, if you do believe in Christ, if you do love Jesus, if you are repenting of sin, if you are loving, living a life of love towards Jesus because you've been saved by him, then your salvation is secure. It's secure in the way the truth, and the life. It's secure in the I am. It's secure in Christ. Wrap up there and leave the rest for next week. Back to the beginning. It's, your benef- it's to your benefit that I go. Your hearts are troubled. Church, your hearts might be troubled, but it's to our benefit that Jesus went isn't it? It's to our benefit that he went out that night. Think of if Peter would have convinced him to stay. Think of if he would have called down those legions of angels to defend him in the garden. But he didn't. He wouldn't. It's to our benefit that he went, church, as it makes his promises of love here to us true, sure, and secure. True rest, true home, true way. All promises of love for you and I. Amen? We get to respond to his promises of love now as we worship and sing together, as we partake of communion together. For those of us who are Christians, as we come to the table together and have our visual aid of Worship, get to eat and drink together as a family. And as we pray together, church, we would invite you up front 
after uh, service to pray with somebody. We invite you to pray. Jesus' promises of love here are real. And in some of your hearts, that may be taking hold. It may be getting a grip. We invite you to, to pray with us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to pray over you. We'd love to ask the I am to have dominion and victory in your heart. Amen? Father God, we thank you for a chance to get together, to worship, to partake of communion, to sing to you. But God, maybe most of all, we thank you that we get to recognize, remember, and rest in the fact that you, the I am, have come to us to provide a way to God. Apart from you, there is no life. Apart from you, there is no spiritual health. Apart from you, we have no blessing from God. Apart from you, we have no part in the family of God. So we here as your people, we worship you this morning, Jesus. You are a good, holy, worthy God. In your precious name, amen.